Father, we do say before you that Christ is Lord, our Savior, we proclaim your name, we acknowledge that you are Lord of our lives, that you are Lord of history, that you are Lord of the ages and Lord of eternity. We pause before this written word now today that reveals to us who you are, and we receive it with thanksgiving. We receive it with joy. We come in repentance, knowing our sin and our need, and we come acknowledging our desperate, the desperate necessity of feeding upon your word. May our souls be fed. May we grow in faith. And may you hear the cry that we've been singing. We pray that we would be brought to repentance and to confession that Christ is Lord. And I ask that in this time together, you will do things that only you can accomplish, that you will teach the truth of your word, that you will make clear to us what we already know, that you will reveal to us what we have not known, and that you will bring conviction of sin and help us to apply the truth that is written here so long ago from the pen of the Apostle Paul to Galatian believers, Gentile believers that lived long before now. But Lord, the message is the same. Our Savior is the same. This Word is the same and will be forever. And so we bend our minds to it and pray that you would draw to Christ those who do not know Him as Savior and aid those of us who do to grow in the faith together. Through Christ we pray these things. Amen. Please be seated. One of the heartaches for people who help people is the reality of relapse or recidivism. In the criminal justice system, recidivism refers to criminals who have been imprisoned, they have supposedly been rehabilitated, and then they return to their criminal behavior. They may receive counsel in prison. They may be released to a halfway house. They might be assigned a mentor and undoubtedly are assigned a probation officer. And the quest of all who work with them is to see this criminal liberated from a lifestyle of crime. But that does not always happen, does it? When Paul Perdue and I led Bible studies at the jail, we occasionally rejoiced with an inmate who informed us at the Bible study that this was his last time here. He was being released. And we would celebrate that and, of course, didn't expect to see him the next week. And memory began to fade of this individual. And then we have a Bible study and there he is again. Sometimes we'd forgotten his name, but the face brought back memories. And yeah, that was our experience with recidivism. Many times the same person coming back for the same crime. And it's discouraging on one level. Those who love and work with criminals or those who work with people addicted to drugs and alcohol face the same challenge. The addicted enter rehab and they receive counsel and the hope of all who help them is that they will steer clear of the chemicals that are ruining their lives. That they won't make this choice anymore. But sadly, the addicted often suffer a relapse. And they go back to their addictive behaviors. 
Now each of us who strives in any capacity to shepherd souls face a similar but even more significant concern. As God's people, one of the realities of life is that the followers of Jesus Christ sometimes turn back to the world. We turn back to the world from which we were once delivered. There is a strong pull from the world, the flesh, and the devil to return to the enslaving clutches of its way of thinking, its living, and loving. And on occasion, we even as a church face the heart-wrenching sorrow as an assembly of having to remove from our membership, to release a member of our body who chooses to return to the ways of the unbelieving world. That's not who we are. That's not what the church is. And so sometimes we need to recognize that this is a necessity. It's a painful one. As a local church, we recognize that one of the vital functions that we have as individuals is to build one another up in the faith, to persevere in the faith, to continue to trust in Christ as Savior and in His deliverance from this world and its sin. It is this concern of the shepherd resisting spiritual recidivism in some sense that fuels Paul's very personal words to the Galatians here in chapter 4 as we come back to this place in our series through this book. Galatians chapter 4, we pick up today with verse 8. Paul has concluded a lengthy theological section in which he stresses that no one is declared just before God by performing religious deeds. No one is righteous before God on the basis of what they do. Rather, sinners are declared righteous before God. They're counted as part of God's people when we place our faith in Jesus Christ crucified and risen to pay the debt of our sins and risen to give us eternal life. When we place our faith in that promise from God, We receive the gift of His Spirit and salvation. Paul has been stressing this through the book. The Galatians had embraced this good news, which Paul preached to them not too long ago. He had come to their region. He had proclaimed this message of reconciliation with God through the work of His Son. They had embraced it. But now, after he has left, false teachers have come in and said, Paul didn't have it quite right. Jesus indeed is God's Messiah, but what you must do to become part of the people of God and to really qualify yourself to walk in fellowship with God, what you must do is submit to the guidelines of the Mosaic Law. You need to receive circumcision. You need to begin to observe again the holy days that are detailed there in the book of the books of Moses. Paul's word of warning to them has been sounded, and to us it is sounded again here in chapter 4, beginning at verse 8. If you'll follow as I read verses 8 through 11, he says to them formally, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now, That you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? 
whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. To summarize a section, Paul says, do not submit to life under the law or you will return to religious slavery. The religious slavery from which you were delivered. Do not submit to life under the law. Do not return to that as your qualification before God or you will return to religious slavery. Let's pick this section apart piece by piece and will hopefully clarify some things that may be a bit confusing, but just stress again in his flow of thought this call to the Galatians and, and the Spirit's call to us as a church, formerly. When you did not know God, this is a reference to what? To their spiritual state before they trusted Jesus as Savior from their sin. Before you knew God, Like all of us, the Galatians were born into a state of alienation and estrangement from God. It's not a message that our world teaches, it's not what people want to hear, but it's what the Bible consistently states, that we are born in a state of alienation from the Lord. But in that state, they trusted the gospel, they came to know God intimately. Remember the context here in chapter 4. They were adopted as sons, verse 5. They were brought into the family of God. They now cry out, Abba, Father. Before then, before you came to know God, the next phrase says, you were enslaved. Enslaved to whom? To what? You were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. I think the idea here is that as pagans, they thought they worshipped gods. They thought they worshipped the divine realm, beings in the divine realm. But the the beings they worshipped were not actually divine. And their worship resulted in the Galatians' spiritual bondage. So formerly, you did not know God. You were enslaved to what you thought were gods, but really are not. And he'll get to what they are later. But verse 9 But now, do you see the contrast there? Verse 8, formerly, but in the past, but now, verse 9, that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. So in contrast to not knowing God, they do now know God. Now that Christ has redeemed them from their slavery to sin, they have come into intimate fellowship with God. And we just pause for a moment on that point. If you have not consciously entered into a personal relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are worshiping false gods. And you are enslaved to sin, whether you recognize it or not. This is the consistent message of God's Word. It is vital that you recognize that, that you see that. Do you know God? Not know about God. But do you know Him as your Father? Can you speak to Him as your personal Savior and Lord? 
if you say, I, I can't, and you know what? I'm going to start trying harder. I'm going to start doing better to qualify myself to relate to God and to know Him that way. If that's your response, it's good to acknowledge that. But let me graciously say to you, that's the wrong answer. It's not time to start working harder because that rests in you and what you can perform and what you can do to please God and to qualify for entrance into His family. What you must do is not work harder. What you must do is meet someone. There's a huge difference. It's not what you do to please God, but it's meeting God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now you notice here there's a shift in statements. It's almost like Paul corrects himself. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting shift of phrase. And he's not saying you don't know God. That's not what he means by rather. But I think he means something along the lines of what is even more important is that he has known you. You have entered into this relationship with God, but far more significantly, he has known you. You might illustrate by, picture an infant lying on its back in the living room, looking up at a chandelier. It can't really move, can't crawl or turn around yet, but, uh, or turn over yet, but just staring up at the lights and intrigued by these lights. And mom is in the kitchen doing some work in there and decides that she's going to stop and come and walk over her little baby into the eye space, into sight, and to interact for a little bit with the, with the, with the infant. And the infant's face lights up, uh, realizing who mom is, and, and there's a little bit of connection there. Now, who, who's seeing whom? Well, the baby, the infant is seeing mom. There she is. She's appeared. She's right there in front of me. I don't know how she got there, but she's there all of a sudden. Who's really the primary player here? It's the mom who has decided to come and to see her baby. And so it is with us. We see God. We know God. We've come into a relationship with Him where we can say, Abba, Father. But really, ultimately, it's because He's gotten into our eyesight. He's come to know us. As Ephesians 1 and verse 5 puts it, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. We do choose God. We willingly, consciously, thankfully look up from our back and see His face and say, I want to know Him. But ultimately, it is He who has chosen us. We love Him because He first loved us. Never forget it. And if this is true, if you know God, you have been known by God, verse 9, then, says Paul, how? How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? The elementary principles 
Uh, Doug Moo puts it this way, defines it this way, the basic material building blocks of the universe, so rocks and stars and trees and and the like, the basic building blocks of the universe, the elements that were often associated with various forms of idolatrous worship in the ancient world. So behind this physical world, the ancients would see these gods that controlled the, the world and so worshipped these gods in nature, through nature. So what they once worshipped as gods were actually not divine, they were demonic. The demonic realm enslaved them to the please me, give me, honor me, serve me orientation that characterizes the spirit of the age. Why would anyone who has been delivered from that slavery want to return to it? Now the analogy falls apart on on a number of levels, but we think of this perhaps of an alcoholic who completes rehab and then is beginning, is uh, sensing the need to slip back in. You say, don't do it. Don't go back there. Don't take that next drink. Don't do it. Now, it, it's not the same because we have somebody returning here to a, a way and a pattern of sin. And that's, and that's kind of it. But it's that same sort of motivation here. The same sort of passion here on Paul's part. Why would you go back to that? Now, contextually, it's a temptation to revert to the dictates of the Mosaic Law. A point which Paul highlights Here in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. That's a return to the Mosaic Law in abbreviated form. The false teachers insist the Galatians must seek to qualify themselves as God's people by submitting to the guidelines of the Mosaic Law, which means Sabbath observance, new moon observance, and week-long festivals. By pursuing these things, by submitting to them once again, you will be better before God. You will qualify to be His people, they were teaching the Galatians. Now Paul makes a stunning statement here. I mean, what's wrong with the Mosaic Law? It came from God. It's not a bad thing. And yet he says, if you submit to that and come back under that, you will be coming back into paganism. Now that the promise to Abraham is realized in the coming of Jesus, the temporary era of law is over. So if you seek to qualify yourself as God's people by works of the law, you will actually be returning to the way of man-centered religion. Now, I'd I'd vote for it. If you're going to go with man-centered religion, I'd really vote for following the Mosaic Law rather than returning to paganism. But But Paul doesn't even give an option here. He doesn't say it's a lesser of two evils. He said you're just going back into the same world of trying to make yourself acceptable to God by your good works. So stunningly, he almost says that to return to Judaism is to return to paganism. The new age of salvation has come. You must recognize this now that Jesus has arrived. To quote Doug Moo again, he says, to go forward into Judaism 
is to go backward into heathenism. That's shocking. Coming to terms in his own mind with the spiritual disaster this would bring, he says in verse 11, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul risked his life to bring the gospel to the Galatians. He had labored to exhaustion for their conversion. If they turn now to law-keeping as a means of knowing God, all will be lost. Paul's earnest efforts in pursuit of their salvation will prove fruitless. So we really see here his pastoral concern, don't we? It's on display. It was his conviction that every, that every professing follower of Christ is headed to heaven or hell. Let me say that again and catch it. Every professing believer in Christ is headed to heaven or to hell. And the fundamental evidence that you are headed for eternity with Christ is that you continue to see your relationship with Him as all-important and all-sufficient. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you received Him? Have you been delivered from slavery to sin and the mindset and lifestyle of this fallen world? Have you truly been delivered? If so, you will persevere in the faith. That is, you will continue to believe in Christ. You will continue to resist the pull of this world. You maybe heard, you've heard the old Negro spiritual. Want to get to heaven? I'll show you how. Keep your hand on that plow. Keep your hand right on that plow. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'd sing it if I could. <laughs> I love it, but I can't. Not well. How do you take those words? Want to get to heaven? Hold on. That might be false doctrine. That might be saying you get to heaven by doing it yourself. By holding on and depending upon yourself. But that can be taken in a right way. And I trust that was the meaning of it. It can be taken to mean keep trusting in Christ. Keep holding on to the faith. Don't let it go. Don't return back to the world. And in that sense, the salvation comes in knowing Christ. But once we come to know Him and become the child of God, we hold on, hold on, hold on. We don't turn back. And we don't give up. We keep saying, Jesus is Lord and Savior, and I trust Him. Hold on. At verse 12, then, we encounter a turning point in the focus of the whole book of Galatians. Although the next section is tied to what precedes, very obviously, it marks the first time that Paul calls the Galatians to a specific course of action. At this point, Paul's appeal becomes more personal in nature. So he has said, do not submit to life under the law or you will return to religious slavery. Now he stresses in these next verses, follow me on the path of freedom in Christ. 
we see the spiritual shepherd out there in front saying, come with me, follow me. Verse 12, brothers, I entreat you before, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. As a Jew, I think this is what he means, as a Jew, Paul has been liberated from the law through faith in Christ. In this sense, he has become like the Gentiles. He now, ironically, calls the Gentile friends here to follow him in his freedom from the law. I become like you. I've been liberated from the law. Now follow me and don't don't submit to it. When he evangelized them, they followed his example. He wants them to do the same here. Remembering those days not long past, he recalls there in verse 12 that you did me no wrong. Remember those days? You did me no wrong. You followed me, but you did me no wrong. They enjoyed a wonderful relationship of mutual respect and beneficial support. A point that he now supports in verse 13. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. We cannot know the nature of Paul's physical ailment. From what we read here and elsewhere, it appears that it was a lifelong challenge for him. We're also unable to reconstruct the specific circumstances in that ailment that led him to evangelize the Galatians. We can't put all the pieces together historically. But his bodily ailment somehow brought him to Galatia. And he says, remember those days? You treated me so well. Now in the ancient setting, we're we're talking about pagans here. And in that setting, you had a physical malady. It was commonly seen as a curse. There was some demonic force that was after you. Pagan Gentiles would have naturally avoided a sick person as far as they were able. But particularly when it was a newcomer. This Jewish rabbi is sick. Get away from him or you'll get cursed too. That would be their thinking. They often spit in the presence of sick people. It was a sign of contempt on one level, but it was also a superstitious attempt to ward off demons, which they believe caused sickness, so they would spit to ward off the demons and not get that sickness. It's interesting that Paul uses a word that literally means spit. You did not despise me. You did not spit at me. Now that can be taken figuratively. When we spit on someone's grave... It's not a blessing, right? But we may not actually spit. It's a figure of speech. That could be a figure of speech here, but he may even be talking literally and saying, you did not spit in my presence to ward off the demons, to, to, to evidence your contempt for me. And this was against all expectation. And it was a sign of the Spirit's influence These Gentiles who could be expected to turn their back on Paul received him because of the message he was sharing. You remember that? He says, verse 15, What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. 
What's happened to your blessedness? Now, that could be taken as blessedness, could be, mean their joyful trust in the gospel, their reception of the Holy Spirit. But I think here in context, he's highlighting something about their relationship. And I think what he's probably saying here is, what happened to you blessing me? When I came to you that first time, you were an unusual source, an un, unexpected source of blessing. What happened? They blessed him, they received him. Indeed, verse 15, they would have gouged out their eyes and given them to him. Again, we don't know if this is figurative or literal. That is, uh, is it possible that Paul had eye problems, an eye disease or an eye ailment? It might be. It may be taken figuratively, but at any rate, they were willing to do whatever it took to help him in his condition. And so in light of that time, when he came and shared the gospel with them, notice verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? He had become their friend by preaching the gospel to them. Had he now become their enemy by preaching the exact same message? What is going on in our relationship here? There's been a tremendous change. We see the spiritual shepherd pleading with these people, don't return to the ways of this world. Hold on to the faith. Hold on. You remember me. You remember what I preach. Hold on to that. Now, why were they now questioning his gospel? We know the answer and as we've looked through this book to this point. But it's the influence of false teachers who were luring them away to a life of law-keeping. Here's how you serve God. Here's how you qualify. Come to this way of life. And it's the thought of them that leads Paul to say what he does very abruptly here in the next verse. In verse 17, without much transition, he just says, they make much of you. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you. Who's the they? Clearly it is these false teachers. Notice verse 17. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Now it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. Let's think on that idea. The false teachers are... He <coughs> The false teachers are heaping zealous attention upon them. They are desperate to win them to their cause. But their motives are impure. First, they want to shut you out. That is, their teaching will ironically separate you from God's people in the true way of salvation, which I preach. Whether the emphasis is on what Paul is preaching or on the, mess, uh, the, message, or the, the way of salvation. But secondly, they want your zealous support. They want to, you to honor them. You see there in verse 18, to make much of you. Here, as in verse 17, what this make much of is actually translating, and I wish it just would do it, but it's actually translating the word zealous. They are zealous. They are anxious to get you to follow their way. Now, that's not a bad thing if somebody is zealous to get you to follow them if what they're getting you to follow is a good thing. Zeal isn't the problem. The problem was the purpose that they had. The purpose that they had was to cut these people out from the true way of salvation and to get attention and honor as the great teachers. 
That's what they're up to, says Paul. But it's good if someone's zealous for a good purpose, verse 18. And not only when I'm present with you, I don't really care who it is. It doesn't have to be me. It's the message that matters. But these guys are up to no good. I'm preaching the same message I preached to you, in which you to which you responded and in, by which you were saved. <clears throat> Verse 19, he carries on, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. My little children. He mixes metaphors here. He labors for them that they might give birth to Christ. Which here means that they will orient their life to His Lordship. Until Christ is formed in you. Schreiner says to reach a state, that this means to reach a stage where it is evident that they will not turn away from Christ. I'm laboring till you get to that place. Or Moo puts it, Paul will not be content until Christ so dominates their lives that there can be no possible change from a settled spiritual condition. This is the labor of the spiritual shepherd on whatever level that labor finds itself and in whomever's life as believers to labor to bring people to a place where they are on solid ground of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The Galatians are wavering. They're being pulled back to works religion. They're being pulled back to thinking it's what I do to please God. And he says, don't go there, my little children. I care for you. I mean, he's called them foolish. He said some hard things here to them. What are you thinking? But here the earnestness of the spiritual father comes out. Please, my little children, don't go back there. Don't relapse into the world's ways of pleasing the gods. Christ has come. The promise has been fulfilled. The temporary nature of the law has now been set aside because the reality is here. Don't follow a list of rules to relate to God. Not on on this level. To qualify yourself as His people. He's your Father. Talk to Him. Relate to Him in the Spirit. Know His Word and put it into practice. But don't go back to a temporary era. To a time of slavery. A time of minority. Remember we talked about that last week. But to the place of majority. You are now an adult child to relate to the Father. And, and the, the earnestness, the spiritual shepherd in him just comes out. It's just oozing through all of it. You see it here in verse 20. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. I am perplexed about you. I, I just don't understand how this is happening. Please don't turn back. Please don't relapse into that way of life. Don't leave what you've embraced and where you've turned for salvation. Don't do it. I'm concerned about you. And I'm convinced that if we could just get together again and I could have a conversation with you and I could change this tone and just nurture you back, I'm positive I could do it by God's grace. So please hear what I'm writing. I can't be there with you. Cling to Christ. Hold on to Him. 
don't revert to the world's ways of work salvation. Now, this was written a long time ago. This maybe particular problem is not some problem that we are dealing with specifically. There's nobody here that came today really pulled to go back under the Mosaic law, to follow the days and to receive circumcision and to do the various things that the law... It's not the battle that we are facing, but there is a message for us each individually here. Have you come to trust Christ as your personal Savior from sin? How could we ask any other question from this text? Could you stand before this congregation and articulate how Jesus has saved you from sin? Could you bear witness to the fruit of the Spirit in your life and the joy that you experience in knowing God as your Father? Now, I might be scary to stand before people and actually figure out what you were going to say there, but if you say, I wouldn't have anything. I really wouldn't know what to say because I got nothing. I know who God is. I have a, a level of respect for Him. But to know Him, to explain how I've come to know Him, to explain the joy of His Spirit in my life, I, yeah, I got nothing there. Let me say to you, if you say, I, I, I'm glad nobody knows you're talking to me, but I'm talking to you. And you say in your heart, okay, what i got to do is get my act together and I need to start doing some things to get myself up to speed with God. Now, I, I don't want to say that you don't act. But don't depend on what you can do. The answer is not in good works. The answer is in good news. Can you just grab that? It's not in good works it's in good news. It's in what someone else has already done. It's in, in, in what some, it's something that has already happened. It's what someone else is telling you about, not you finding a way forward in your own strength. Jesus crucified for the forgiveness of sinners who desperately need His salvation. That's the issue. That's the good news. Call on Him to be saved. Speak to Him. Ask Him to forgive your sins as you trust in Jesus crucified and risen. It's good news. For those of us who have come to that saving faith, we, how can we see what Paul's doing here and just applaud and say, good job, Paul. Man, he must have been a great guy to know. We need to respond and say, that needs to be me. Is there a zeal in your heart to see others walk with Christ and not fall away and not return to the ways of this world, to its slavery to sin and world and, and self-religion? There should be a zealous yearning in our hearts that new believers and long-time believers will persevere in the faith. To orient ourselves to be motivated by saying in so many words, hold on, hold on, hold on. And coming down to your own heart and mind, what sin struggle is in the way? Are your feet solidly on Christ and His Lordship or is there a war with sin? Well, that war has been won by Christ. You must trust His provision 
but you do so by systematically uprooting and killing sin in your life. Every sin that you turn away from, every time you choose to obey Christ, is a vote to stay in the faith. And I mean by that, it is a holding on and a persevering in our trust in Christ. To continue to heed His word, to listen to what He has said, and to not turn back to this world's ways and its philosophies. But this is not only a call for us individually, it is also a call to us as an assembly. The point of this passage, its lean and its, its, its spirit, would lead us to recognize that as an assembly, we play this same part in one another's lives. Let's consider together Hebrews chapter 3. Let's have it on the screen here for you. But Hebrews 3 and verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's, That's what we don't want to see happen. To see someone fall away from the living God. But... Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin can come in and attack any of us individually, and we can develop a hard heart. The task of the local church is to work together to build one another up in the faith, and to make sure that the hardness of heart does not creep in. Now we do that by positive ways and negative ways. Sometimes it's confrontation, but most often it's simply words of encouragement, prayers together, talking together about the things of God in whatever context that is, but having a discussion about God's Word, praying together as God's people, and encouraging one another with our presence, with our love, with our ongoing edification. That's the task that we are about as a church. And may God infuse this church with that kind of a spirit. It says don't turn back to the ways of this world. Keep pressing on in faith in Christ. Doing whatever is necessary and what is right and appropriate to bring one another along in that journey. To say by our actions and by our words, so to speak, hold on. Hold on, let's encourage each other that way. As we sing words of encouragement, as we speak words of encouragement, as we heed God's word together, as we pray together, let's say by our very lives to one another, hold on. And if you need counsel today, you say, I'm I'm wavering, I'm being drawn back, I'm not holding on, know that Christ is holding you most significantly, but also know that you're in a church that's willing to hold on to. And we will work together. We'll talk through our sin and our lives, as we all do. There's no sinless person here, and there's no one here that's not attracted to the voice of this world. Nobody. But let's press forward, and let's encourage each other, and let's be willing to talk about our temptations that we might put this into practice, exhorting one another, as long as it is today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. May there be no turning back, but may we hold on to Christ.
Our Father, we thank you for this exhortation and how applicable it is to each one of us. To those who have not thought about turning back to the world, to those who perhaps are right on the verge of it. Wherever we land, and for those also who have not yet come to Christ as Savior, we thank you for this word. And I pray that you would drive it home deeply within our soul. And that this sermon today, this passage of Scripture, the songs we've sung, the word that we've considered, I pray that these would be like seeds of endurance. That this investment of this hour together might keep us in the faith. Might keep us from turning away. Turning back to the philosophies, to the actions, to the attitudes of this world. If I pray for anyone who is outside of Christ and needs to know Him, and I'm sure that I do, I pray that they'd come to Christ today. And if I pray for anyone, and I'm sure that I do, who is wavering in their faith, I plead that you would open their mouth and allow them to talk and seek counsel and support. And I pray that together today, we as a church would so edify one another and that this will be a moment where we keep holding on. I pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen. Would you stand with me and take to heart these words that were just prayed and consider your own heart in light of these words we've just heard.